Welcome to Moments in Leadership, another new episode here. I have as my guest, Lieutenant General Dave Bellin, originally from Fort Polk, Louisiana, which my dad will find very interesting because that's where he was stationed when he was in the Army, raised in St. Louis, Missouri, and is a graduate of the University of Kansas back in 1987, but then also, interestingly, the University of Missouri School of Law in 1990. Now, here's the thing to pay attention to with a little bit of math. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant in 1989. Lieutenant General Bellin began his service as an infantry officer with 2-7 out in 29 Palms, and then our 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, and later served as a judge advocate with the 1st Service Support Group. 1997, he left active duty, and he joined the Selected Marine Corps Reserves, and he served for six years with the 4th Light Armor Reconnaissance Unit, the LAR Battalion, and he had a variety of different positions in the battalion over those six years. And then after 9-11, he returned to active duty for four combat tours in support of both Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom, during which in OIF-1, he served as the operations officer for 4th LAR with both Task Force Tarawa and Task Force Scorpion. Then during OIF-2, General Bellin served as the intelligence officer for Regimental Combat Team 1 during its 14-month deployment in and around the city of Fallujah and participated in both battles for the city. His third OIF tour was as a battalion commander of 3rd Battalion, 23rd Marines, between 2007 and 2008, and his battalion executed counterinsurgency operations in and around the city of Al-Haditha, Iraq. He then went on to top-level school at the Naval War College and received subsequent orders for another deployment to Afghanistan in 2009, where he served as the chief of operations for southern Afghanistan during the 2010 surge. He was then promoted to brigadier general in 2013, and his assignments as a general officer prior to his current billet include deputy commander of 1st MEF, 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, then deputy of Marine Forces Command, then director of reserve affairs, and Commander of Marine Forces South, and Director of Strategy, Policy, and Plans, the J-5, for U.S. Southern Command. He was promoted to his current rank of Lieutenant General and assumed the duties as Commander of Marine Forces Reserves and Marine Forces North on September 4, 2019. Welcome, Lieutenant General Bellin. It's great to be here, Dave. Really appreciate you making some time. I hope you like the music. I wasn't sure if you had some coffee yet or not, so that was my introduction there. Some new technology in the podcast going on. Yeah, getting fired up and stretching out over here. <laughs> exactly. I'd love to start off the conversation with you telling the story about coming into the Marine Corps, starting with OCS, because it's a really interesting story. I was in law school. One of my very close friends growing up, a guy named Rob English, when we graduated from high school, he was a great athlete and a very good football player in the town I grew up in, and he was getting recruited, and I thought he was going to go play for a pretty major school, and we were talking on the phone back and forth our senior year in high school. He ended up enlisting in the Marine Corps, which shocked me. You might as well have said, I'm going to inhabit Mars. I had no context for that, even though I was born in Fort Polk, Louisiana. My dad was in the Army. It just wasn't in my whole idea of what was possible after high school. And so he said he enlisted in the Marine Corps. I thought, wow, that's crazy. So he and I, as I went to college, he went into the Marine Corps, and we would write each other letters back and forth. By the time I got to law school, there was a Marine recruiter came onto campus at the University of Missouri, and I saw the flyer. who was going to come to do interviews, and I thought, that'll make a great letter to my buddy. So I set up an interview. And I went to talk to the recruiter. He saw me coming a mile away. He was the prototype recruiter, great guy, Brett Shoemaker. He's now deceased. But I walked into his little office at the time of my appointment, and he had one of those little grenades on his desk. It says, complaint department, please take a number. And there's a number attached to the pin, you know. And he looked at me, and I was in good shape. You know, I was uh, playing lacrosse at the University of Missouri. And he looked at me, 
And I said, yeah, hey, I'm interested in doing this officer candidate school thing. Remember, this is pre-internet, so I was like I saw it like on a trifold. I had no idea about any of this stuff. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I don't see it. I mean, just like that. He saw me coming a mile away. Somehow my comportment or something he picked up that I needed to be challenged. And he said that to me and it flipped the interview in an instant from me driving the bus and trying to find funny quotes to make a letter to my buddy to me being, oh, really? Well, let's see about that. And he handed me a VHS tape and sent me home. And that VHS tape had scenes of OCS. I remember the obstacle course. And he made it clear that, hey, we have a tryout system. It's called OCS. You try out. And if we like you, we offer you a spot on the team. But if you don't like us, you don't have to take it. And so I literally went to OCS thinking to myself, okay, this is just a test. I'm not going to be a Marine, but if I, this is a free test. I'll do this for my summer job. I was painting houses in the summer at the time. It was super hot, brutal work in Missouri. And I thought, well, OCS can't be much worse than that. So I signed up for OCS and I went. Very little prep. I remember being at the airport in St. Louis and they handed me a manila envelope and, and it was a really poorly photocopied ranks and general orders. And I remember the staff sergeant saying, hey, you should probably try to memorize these on the plane on the way. And that's it. And I went to OCS. So I went there intending not to take my commission just to see if I could hang. To be clear, you were doing the full 10-week OCS for listeners. There's different ways. So it's a full 10-week and at the end of it, you get your commission. In as a civilian, out as a lieutenant. That's right. You come in off the street with other folks. There's a lot of prior enlisted too. They're in there. At that time, you went through the full 10 weeks. On the last day or last week, they tell you if you made it or not. And then you tell them if you want to accept your commission or not. You weren't sure you were going to take your commission. I was sure I wasn't. I proved it to myself that I could do it. I had profound respect for the institution, but I was pretty sure I wasn't going to take it. And I was on Firewatch the last night. Open squad bay. We had our rifles with us. There's rifle racks were in the middle of the squad bay. And I had my H harness on and I'm walking down with my little gooseneck flashlight and just doing the circles around the rifle racks up and down the squad bay. And I went to the end of the squad bay where my buddy Charlie Murphy, of course called Murph, from Boston was. I just met him there at OCS. But we became friends. And he was at the last rack on the left, top rack. And I woke him up probably two in the morning, you know. Hey, Murph, I just want to tell you that tomorrow morning I'm going to decline my commission and they're probably going to separate me quickly from the platoon and I'll be gone and you guys are going to get your commission. And I just want to say, and I didn't even finish the sentence. And in a thick Boston accent, he used a expletive right at me. Blank you, Bellin. You're taking your commission. Now get out of here. He said it in a very, like a leader's way, the classic sarcasm that Marines use with each other. And I remember turning, going back down the squad and I remember thinking, well, I guess I'm going to be a Marine. And that's literally how I made my decision to accept my commission. So you accept your commission, second lieutenant, but then you went back to law school for your final year because you were funded law. You joined the Marine Corps to become a lawyer. Yeah, I wasn't funded. I got another series of poor decisions along the way. I took no money from the Marine Corps for law school. So I came out of law school with student loans. So I went back to law school, part of my contract, because I was recruited to be an attorney. My contract was I had to graduate law school and pass the bar before I could come back in. I went back to law school, summer of 1989, and finished my last year of law school. That's how you and I ended up at TBS at about the same time, which was interesting because, as listeners know, I've told in other episodes, was out in the field when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and you were too, at TBS. And that was a moment that changed a lot of things for you. Tell everybody about the day that we learned Saddam Hussein was invading Kuwait and what that meant for you. I was actually on a ladder painting a house in Missouri because I went back and I was trying to make some cash. I took the bar exam in the summer of 1990, and the bar exam results had not come out yet. 
I wasn't going to ship until I had gotten the word that I passed the bar. So I think that was in August, if I remember correctly. And I'm on a ladder. My brother and I were painting the house. We used to have a radio on. And this news flash came on, and it talked about Iraq had invaded Kuwait. And I knew a little bit about the Middle East at the time. I thought, wow, that's huge. So I got off the ladder and listened to the news. And I had this feeling. It's funny, as I'm thinking about it now, I only had that feeling one other time. It was after 9-11 that things had really changed. I went back and I called my OSO, my recruiter, and I had said, hey, listen, I want to go to TBS right now. And he said, hey, you can't go to TBS until we know you pass the bar. I called the State Bar of Missouri. I'll tell you about a different time. And I talked to this woman and I said, hey, listen, I'm a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. I don't know if you saw the news. I need to go to officer's candidate school right now. They're not going to let me go unless I can tell them I passed the bar exam. And she's like, well, the bar exam isn't out yet. I said, I understand that. But you guys know if we passed or not. And I'm asking you. And she told me on the phone, you passed. And so I called my OSO and I said, I passed. Just on that alone, he shipped me. Like it was days later. He got me into the next TBS company, and I drove across the country and reported into TBS, you know, that August or September, whatever it was. As you know, that whole environment was crazy at TBS when that happened. I started TBS in May, so I remember you being at TBS, but I don't remember exactly when you showed up. We definitely met at TBS, and that was a crazy time because I'm sure, just like you heard, we were being told second lieutenants we're expecting to lose like 30,000 people. Yeah, 30,000. It was 30,000 Marines casualties. That's what they were telling us. Right. Your life expectancy is 30 seconds. We're trying to extend it to 60 seconds. Yeah. Constructive leadership. You want to be an infantry officer. So you're a lawyer and you want to be an infantry officer. When I was in my last year of law school, I guess I kind of knew when I was at OCS, the lawyers got a lot of guff. I didn't participate in that, sir. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Combat lawyer this, combat lawyer that. So I was big into competing. Whether it was Pugil Six or Oakhurst races, I enjoyed talking smack, you know, and I enjoyed competing. And so I would step up and volunteer. I remember there was a guy that played football for Nebraska. And back then, Nebraska was still a D1 athlete's a D1 athlete. People were afraid of this guy. They were looking for somebody to take him on a Pugil Sticks. And before I could stop myself, I had volunteered because I just did not like the whole combat lawyer BS thing. And I was trying to run an insurgency with the lawyers like, hey, we got to man up and fight. You know, They're like, well, let me take my glasses off. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's all good. And there were some great athletes that were attorneys too. That was my attitude going in. And so when Panama went down in the winter fall of 89, I remember feeling a strong feeling like, yeah, that's really what I want to do. I want to lead Marines. I want to be out there and be part of the general fleet, so to speak. Maybe I'll come around later and be an attorney, but I really need to prove something to myself. I think that's what I really felt. When Saddam invaded Kuwait, I showed up and joined you guys at TBS. That was in my heart. I really felt that. And by the time I started hearing all that crazy talk about 30,000 casualties, I just could not get to a place where I could be okay doing wills for reservists and not what I perceived as doing my part. And so I went in and said, I, I want to drop my contract and go basic ground assignable. Tell me what the facial expression was of the, the officer that you said oh, that to. You can just imagine. I don't even know if you could do it now, but back then when they're thinking, hey, we need a lot of lieutenants. Remember they were talking about a frog schedule and putting up tents in the landing zones and like quadrupling the size of TBS and all that stuff. And here comes some guy who says, I want to be an infantry officer. I want to compete. And at that time, ground combat arms and infantry was competitive. And so I said, I'm not asking for a guarantee. I'll compete with everybody else. That's what I'm asking you to do. They did, in hindsight, really good things. They screwed with me. They wanted to make sure I was serious. Before you graduate from TBS, you get what's called a straw poll. Where they kind of give you a mock, hey, if you graduate today, this is the MOS you're going to get. Remember that? Oh, I remember. Yeah. So they called me in to the company commander's office, which you just didn't get called to the company commander's office for anything good. 
So I'm out there at parade rest on the linoleum waiting to be called into the company commander's office. He says, okay, report to the company commander. Go in and report to the major. And he says, okay, Bellin, you got Hawk missiles. For those of you that don't know, that was an anti-aircraft missile battery. Nobody knows it because they went away. It was an obscure MOS even back then. He put me at parade rest. I remember standing there at parade rest, like doing the math in my head. There's no way. I didn't know anything. And I'm thinking, they're bluffing. There's no way. How do I play this? You know, just processing, processing quickly. And he's staring up at me. He's a Cobra pilot. And he's like, you know, you got Hawk missiles. What do you want to do? And I said, okay, sir, I'll take Hawk missiles. So be it. And it seems in my memory, like the next day, if you remember how we got our MOSs, they literally dot matrix printed your name in a list and your MOS was next to it. They posted it on a door in the hallway and all the lieutenants would go down to the end of the hallway and look for your name and figure out what you got. And I remember going down the list and I came to Bell in 0302 Infantry thinking, oh my God, thank God. It was a crazy night. Cobra pilot back then, did that happen to be General Milstead? No. Okay. He was there at the same time too. I was curious because I did an interview with him back in April of 2021. Yeah, I listened to him. Yeah. And you also mentioned Panama. Just for people listening, I also have a great interview with General Craig Nixon, United States Army, who talks about his combat jump into Panama. And that's back in May of 2001. So check that out if you're interested in hearing a personal story about Panama. I always like to start these interviews off and, you know, geez, we're 15 minutes into this, um, where I ask, what were some of the formative things that you learned in the first five years of your career that were really instrumental crystallizing moments. You've already launched into one, which is awesome. And I think that's a great story. What I take away from hearing something like that is when you have conviction, something you want to do, you do it and you did it. And that had to have been frightening because I couldn't imagine walking in and saying, I'm giving everything up and want to do this. And you could have gotten Hawk missiles. I think I had some guilt too. My grandparents were all immigrants, but I grew up pretty comfortable. I was well-educated. My family invested in education. I had a nuclear family. I was not uncomfortable growing up. I perceived a very safe environment. But I identified with my grandparents, who were refugee types. And I felt guilty. And I wanted to make sure I had my turn to prove myself and earn my citizenship, station, whatever. And I think, looking back on it, that was a big part of it. So after TBS, you get assigned to the glorious duty station of 29 Palms, California, as an infantry officer. But you're going out there as a first lieutenant because of your lawyer time, you were accruing all that time and getting promoted. Tell me a story about something you remember from your early infantry years as a lieutenant walking in to an infantry battalion. And yes, you've been to IOC, but you're senior. So that's a weird lineup with other lieutenants that are around. I was really lucky. I showed up as a second lieutenant. I can't remember exactly if I agreed to not take the accelerated rank. I can't remember how it all worked. I showed up as a second lieutenant, but I got promoted pretty early, but I actually showed up as a second lieutenant. Showing up as a second lieutenant was a huge advantage to me because the first time I met my Marines, met my peers, met my seniors, met the staff and COs, I was a second lieutenant. Now, I think I got promoted months later, but at least my initial relationships were formed as a second lieutenant. But I was convinced that I was being sent to 29 Palms as part of the continued harassment package because I dropped my law contract. I really believed that. I didn't know where 29 Palms was. And when I showed up there in my office, I remember that first day opening the door and walking out to report thinking, oh my God, I've been banished. What is this place? Like all lieutenants do. You and I were there at the same time. And that's when we initially got to become better friends because lieutenants kind of stick together in 29 Palms for social reasons, especially the single ones. The LPA is alive and well at 29 Palms. I think I was sent there out of punishment, not out of any harassment package. So you check in. What was your first platoon like? What were some of the things that you remember learning immediately and saying to yourself, they didn't get me ready at TBS for this? What was your first aha moment? 
First of all, I can say with absolute professional certainty, coming out of infantry officer's course and driving across country and going into that job, it was the most prepared for any job I've ever been since. I was technically and tactically prepared very well. The big gap, of course, is experience. And you're finding yourself as a leader. But I remember one of the very first things we did, we got sent out on an LST, LST 1197, the USS Tuscaloosa. We went up the East Coast, ended up going into Vancouver. The Princess Patricia Light Infantry, which was the Canadian Rangers, we were going to participate in an exercise with them. And so I'm thinking, okay, all these Marines just got back from Iraq. We were there. They were coming back. And the Lance Corporals had two rows of ribbons, which seemed like a lot to us because we were wearing the Firewatch, the National Defense Ribbon. It was a big deal. We missed the war and all that stuff. And, and so I hadn't had a chance to really get out and see. I had just done like backyard training with the Marines. and hadn't made a professional assessment yet of how good they were. But I just made all these assumptions because they just came back from war. They were going to be really good. So I remember the exercise was the PPCLI, the Canadians, were being recalled off of Liberty. And it was this big scenario. We were going to do this battalion-level exercise against an opposition force. Small craft paddling across the bay and humping through the hills and setting up ambushes and all that stuff. I remember being on the deck of the LST, camming up with my platoon and giving them this speech about, hey, you guys are all war veterans and let's show some grace here. And the Canadians are not going to be at your level, but let's make sure we are professionals. Make a long story short, we got out on that exercise and the Canadians absolutely buried I got attached to a company. The company commander is very deferential. You know, hey, Lieutenant, uh, you know, understand that these guys didn't go to Saudi Arabia and blah, blah, blah. I say, sir, it's not going to be a problem. We were moving through the night. We finally did a security halt when it was just morning. And I'm looking forward and all the Canadians, are, every time they stop, they're putting foliage in their gear and they're camming up. They're constantly improving their positions, just like we were taught in Quantico. And I remember turning around, looking at my platoon at one stop, and they're like sitting up against the tree, you know, cracking open MREs, you know, going total admin. And that's how the day unfolded, realizing, okay, I'm over being embarrassed about not going. These guys need training like every other Marine. And that's what my first evolution was. Was that you by yourself or did your whole company go? The whole company went, but we got split up. So my platoon was attached to this Canadian company. I don't recall seeing the rest of the company or my company commander until the exercise was over. So from the perspective of learning to become a new leader, talk to me about what your relationship was like with your very first platoon sergeant. I didn't have a staff NCO. It was a sergeant. And then the sergeants kind of rotated through, coming back on the ship and looking at these guys. And I told the platoon, I said, hey, look, this is not personal. This is professional. If you don't feel like you got embarrassed today, me too. Okay, me too. We got embarrassed. So whatever we think about ourselves, that's not reality. I'm just telling you as the new guy, that's not who we are which is kind of a bold thing for a new lieutenant to say, but I had already had enough of a relationship with the NCOs that it was the truth and they knew it and we all knew it. Sergeant Petty was a Marine, I remember. He just came off the drill field. He was not in the war either. He was a bit of a heavy and we got pretty serious after that. Not malicious, but just we're not the train here. Did you find a lot of value in standing up in front of your guys as a brand new lieutenant and saying, I'm embarrassed, I'm going to get better? I think there's a natural tendency to want to hide inexperience and not admit when you're wrong when you're younger because you're overcoming all those obstacles. What was that like? And did you feel like that was a good moment? This sounds weird, but I've always loved the Marines. You know, I've always been very sincere in how I feel about the Marines. But that doesn't mean you're soft. You know, they joined for the same reason you did. So holding them to the standard is part of the deal. It's what they joined to do. And so anything less than that is beneath them. 
And I've always kind of understood that. Yeah, I think when you're younger as a leader, you're always more emotional. You can't really draw the line between emotion and passion. Emotion, I believe, is, is not really a positive thing. Passion is a good thing because you're trying to channel that in a constructive way. I was probably emotional because I just didn't have enough experience yet, but I was very sincere and it wasn't personal to them. I think the NCOs had decided that I wasn't coming at this. It was about we, you know, we need, not you. It wasn't like you suck. It was like, hey, we need to do a lot of work together. We're about to get started. I think they forgave me if I came off emotional because they probably bought in that, okay, we probably do need to do some work. So you went back to your battalion. Now you're in a big infantry battalion, lots of other officers, lots of staff NCOs, other companies and things like that. Can you recall a time from your lieutenant time where you looked at a situation, a leader, whether it was senior enlisted or officer, or even a peer and said, that is not me and I will never. Did you see some bad leadership that was constructive to you in terms of making yourself a good leader? Here's a small world. I've listened to all your podcasts and uh, Andy Milburn. I love that podcast. Great podcast. And Andy talks about a guy named Frank Topley. If you remember, he was telling some stories about here. He was coming back and forth. And Frank Topley worked with him in Quantico. And he had very kind things to say about Frank. And Frank was my first company commander. You come out of IOC and those captains that are your instructors at the Infantry Officers Course, they take on a disproportionate amount of influence on you. And they're very squared away. They know they're hand selected. That's very competitive. And they're beasts physically, very tough physical people. When I got to the fleet, naturally, I would have assumed that my company commander was going to be like my IOC instructors, appearance-wise. And Frank's not. I don't know how tall he is, maybe 5'7". He's just not physically imposing. But my God, was he a good first leader for me to have. I was very lucky. I had a guy who you could easily look past. But if you spent time with him, careful to observe what he was doing, he was excellent. And so I was able to look around and see people that looked the part and had all the social personality and all the other things that make people popular. And then I was able to work for and with Frank on a daily basis. And I was just blessed to have that. He taught me and I was very loyal to him. still am. I love those kind of stories. When you think back to your lieutenant time, I'm going to say your first five years, was there a time where you did something wrong or you wish you could have a do-over? And could you tell that story in the context of a young upcoming leader, think a lieutenant at TBS or a sergeant at the sergeant's course, that you could say like, hey, I made this mistake and this was bad. And they could learn something from hearing that and basically say, okay, I'm not going to do that. One was at Bridgeport. I got sent to the Summer Mountain Leaders course and it was great. That is a tough, tough course. We came out of that and then we got deployed to Okinawa, Japan for UDP, for unit deployment. And on the back end of UDP, we were coming back in the winter and I really wanted to go to winter mountain leaders because summer mountain leaders have been such a great experience. And so we got like permissive TAD during the leave period, me and another lieutenant that went to summer mountain leader with them. We really eaten up with the mountaineering thing. And so we went and it's a totally different course. Summer mountain leaders is all about PT and climbing, physically very difficult. And winter mountain leaders course is about moving around in the snow, skiing, being able to live in the snow for six weeks. It's more mentally tough than physically tough. Well, physically pretty tough too. You get put in charge of the patrols you rotate through. And it's a mix between officers and enlisted, you know, some NCOs, staff NCOs, and company grade officers typically who's in these classes. And it was my turn to be in charge of patrol. And the way we had it, we had some very tough sergeant instructors that were our instructors. 
And we would like get out there and ski all night or all day and get to our location we were supposed to go. And then you have to set up your snow shelters and then set up Arctic sentries. It's very physically demanding and cold and you're wet and sweaty. And you finally get in your bag and the radio would come up and they would say pull pull, which means collapse everything and move to a new location. And it was just kind of part of the, hey, mentally, do you have the endurance to do this? They're testing you the whole time. Of course, you're young enough that you just think they're screwing with you. We had been through several days of that and got into an ambush and we set up an ambush and did it. And the instructors all ski away and they give you your frag to get to the next place. You have a certain amount of time. And I had decided that the best thing for the patrol to do was to rack out for two hours. Just get two hours of sleep. I knew we were going to be going all night again. There was a staff sergeant in my course. It was a force recon Marine and we had become pretty close. I said, here's what I think we need to do. We just need to get into the tree line, get two hours of sleep and then get on with it. And he's like, I don't know if that's a good idea. He was trying to tell me this is not a good idea, but I wasn't listening because I probably was too inward at the time. I was also tired, you know? And so everybody goes into their bags. We're lined up. We have a sentry posted. The instructors had seen this many times before and they were just waiting just out of sight. And they came in and wrecked us. I mean, wrecked us. Took our ski poles, took skis, screaming at us, we're flailing and they're, get moving, you know, and we start trying to move with one ski or one pole. It was just a shit show. And I'm still, it's even hard for me to tell the stories. I'm just personally and professionally embarrassed that I let that patrol down. It still burns me. I catch myself shaking my head to this day when I think about it, about how weak I was in that moment and set my Marines up to get harassed like that. Another one was when I lost my temper, we were doing this exercise in 29 Palms and we were doing a helicopter raid in Mop 4. So you remember what that was like. This is summer. We're in full mop gear, which, you know, for those of you that don't know, are rubber booties, rubber gloves, mask with your full charcoal suit on and your full combat load, body armor, weapons, live fire. I was the XO of the company at that time. And the bottom line is we had to go and get into this position. We had dragon missiles attached, which were the equivalent of the javelins. Now they're wire-guided missile, anti-tank missile. We got up on this piece of high ground and we were in position. And I'm trying to get the paint, which is like the enemy situation from the controllers. And so I go up to this guy and I was kind of yelling through my mop suit. I was like, hey, what's going on? Is that target active? It was a stack of tires or whatever. Can we launch the rockets, missiles? And anyway, this Marine, turns out he was a sergeant, got on the radio. I couldn't see rank. He couldn't see my rank. And he's like, hey, there's some Marine here who's kind of losing his shit and he wants to know if the targets are active. He set me up. He was crafty. He knew probably I was a lieutenant and he went there and I went off. Submarine, what the, you know, and I, and I ripped off my mask and I made a total ass of myself. I'm just embarrassed still to this day that I did it. And I tried to remember that when you lose your temper, it's totally self-indulgent. It's not constructive. You're just indulging yourself and it's absolutely counterproductive. And I revisit that and pick my own wounds. You know, I feel my own scars from that. I'm still embarrassed to this day. I wish I could find that Marine and apologize to him. He doesn't remember it. I do. Thanks for sharing that. I think those are two really valuable stories for young leaders to hear. I'm just going to put an exclamation point on that because I'll tell you that my quick answer to that question is anytime I lost my temper and yelled at people, I try to look back and think to myself, what was it that told me that that was okay to act like that as an officer? And I think it was just growing up in the Marines, you're at OCS, you're getting yelled at all the time. You're at TBS, you're getting yelled at. You see Marines getting yelled at. You see movies like full metal jacket. And you just think this is how you communicate with people. And I wonder, was that what made me think it was okay to be this big bombastic yeller? And boy, do I regret all of that. There's definitely elements of culture, but for me, where I've gotten for myself, trying to be honest with myself, it's ego. 
you have culminated in a situation you're not prepared to deal with constructively, and you're frustrated, your ego's damaged or whatever the hell it is, and you don't have the discipline to lead your way through it. So you result to what a child does. You self-indulge in your temper. And what I've learned, you know, especially as I've gotten older and stayed in the game, I'm closer to 60 now than I am to 50. And you just don't have the physical capacity to do this. Your social energy is a precious commodity. And you try to use that in a constructive way. And I don't mean being a cheerleader. I just mean teach, coach, mentor, lead. And you only have so much of it. And when you lose your temper, it's like dumping all your fuel at once. 15 minutes afterwards, if you have a moment where you can constructively lead, you just don't have the same resources. So I try to be mindful. When I feel myself getting frustrated, I try to acknowledge it. Hey, you're getting frustrated right now. Maybe it's time for you to back off a little bit and pay attention. Like I'll never forget that staff sergeant tried to warn me and I steamrolled past his warning sign. So now, like when my sergeant major or somebody says something or gives a signal, I try to pay attention to that and catch myself. I will recall a personal conversation that I had with you that I hadn't thought about bringing up at all, but it was over a decade ago. You had just come back from Iraq and you and I had this conversation about emotional energy. And you use the example of it's the space shuttle taking off, Mm -hmm. right? And all the fuel, all the smoke and everything, but it's not moving. I don't know if you remember this or not. Yeah, yeah. You want to be the leader in orbit. Just like little puffs of rocket, poof, poof, and you're moving in your perfect orbit and you're super efficient. That's how you want to be leading because when the time comes to be, you're at a decisive moment or a moment of real impact, that you have a full quiver, a full combat load to lead through that. But if you're dumping it all to indulge your own ego, when those moments come, you don't have it. Yeah. It's funny, when I was young, you know, think of yourself as like the fighter. You know, you're flying around, you're the first person actor in a game. And then later, you know, as I've got battalion commander and beyond, I start to think of myself as the tanker that the fighters can come up, get a sip of gas and go do their thing. And I'm always on station all the time. All my best days is not what I do every day. I'll be straight. But that enabling, teach, coach, mentor, make decisions in a timely way and get on with it. Accept risk where you have to and get on with it. When you and I had that conversation, it was extremely formative to me in my civilian career because that was the very first day where I said to myself, for the rest of my life, I'm not going to expend my emotional energy on things that don't rate it. You go to sleep at night and that's when you recharge your emotional energy. So you only have so much gas in the tank every single day. And hey, I hate to break it to everybody, but as you get older, your emotional gas tank gets smaller, (laughs) but you learn to ration your emotional energy out, or you should learn to ration your emotional energy out. And Maybe a lieutenant has a lot more emotional energy than you and I do these days. But I look at that and I think to myself, that's when I started to realize like, geez, I really wish my do-over was going back and stopping myself all the times I lost my temper and yelled at everybody. So I will encourage young leaders listening to this to keep in the back of your mind that whole thing about emotional energy and what General Bellin just said about be the tanker. Get your fighters sweet on the gas and let them go out and be their emotional energy recharger. That's your job as a leader. Probably a lot more important as you go up the ranks. It's crucial, and I think it helps for mental health and just your own well-being to follow that. Boy, I'll tell you this too. This is your interview, not mine, so I'll stop. But if you find yourself as an officer yelling at somebody, you should probably stop because there's probably a pretty close to 100% chance as you can get that you're wrong or not really having the impact you want to have. Yeah. There was a one time in combat where I had to do it, but I literally did it intentionally to send a signal. But it takes practice, right? I could go back and think of all the times I was stuck in 29 Palms on a Friday afternoon PME or whatever, or standing in formation and just totally indulging in my own frustration, my own personal frustration, working myself up internally, being sarcastic or cynical, 
And instead, realizing, okay, this is a competitive moment for myself. Can I get control of my own feelings here and conduct myself professionally? Me control how I feel about this moment, not allow the moment to give me an excuse to spool. I would have worked much harder. I had to do that later in life. If I had to do over, that's what I would do. That's a really valuable lesson for young leaders to hear. I'll follow that up with a question that's the opposite end of the spectrum, but you personally and senior leaders in general are often very humble about themselves. And I appreciate that. But I'm going to ask you, talk to us about the very first time you were really proud of yourself as a leader. Do you remember what that was and what was it? You said to yourself, you know what? I nailed that. I was surprised. So I was on my first unit deployment program to Okinawa and we were about to leave the island and we had a battalion formation and I got called out and was given a Navy Achievement Medal, which was a big deal. I don't know that I'd even seen that happen yet. I never considered myself in the top of the lieutenants. I didn't see myself that way. There were more dominant personalities and other people who I admired myself, who I looked up to. And so when I got that at the end of the deployment, for some things that we had achieved and done, you know, built some ranges and some other things, it literally surprised me. And I remember kind of reflecting on it afterwards, thinking, okay, the organization is trying to tell me something. And Frank Topley wrote me up for it, you know, and I respected him very much. It just really surprised me. And it was the first time I thought, okay, yeah, connecting the dots, I guess I can do this okay. Put on my uniform, you know, I still have a very warm memory about that one little ribbon because it was the first signal from the institution to me that, hey, actually, you're doing a pretty decent job here. That's the first time professionally, you know, and then operationally, we all wonder until we actually get in combat for the first time, can we do it? Now, you and I came in at a unique time where we missed the Gulf War, but the World War II and Korean Marines were still around a lot. They would come around, you know, we would host them and they would come around and tell us about Iwo Jima, Peleliu, Inchon, all these famous battles. And so they were lions to us. And of course, the Vietnam vets were young. They were giants to us. So I didn't actually get into like no kidding combat, not just rounds cracking around, but actual combat until I was a major. And it was the Battle of Nasria when I was with Task Force Tarawa. I functioned, you know, this one night, things were going sideways and I played my position, I'll leave it at that. And the next morning, I realized... I guess I can do this for real. And that put away all of that anxiety, that insecurity about whether I could do it. And so those two moments were fundamental for me. I want to dig in a little bit on that last comment that you made about how you were major the first time you were in combat on Oz. Definitely a pretty brutal situation to be involved in. What do you tell a leader at TBS right now or at the Sergeant's Course who has to go out and remove a lot of those anxieties sooner rather than later and isn't probably going to get a chance to do it in combat? What should leaders be looking at in terms of training where they can work on removing their anxiety of, I may not be good at this until I'm proven in battle. They may never get a chance to prove themselves. Well, I would say two things. So Sergeant Major Ruiz and I, he's the Sergeant Major I work with now for Marine Forces Reserve, Marine Forces South. He and I get sent to talk to every single TBS company. So we talk to every single lieutenant. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it is awesome. Is that just you exclusively or does the Marine Corps as an institution cycle the generals through... And they're seeing a lot of general officers. I think he and I are the only two that hit every company. You know, the commandant basically said, hey, go out there and I want you to do this. And then the, the commander of the school kind of keeps us on the rotation. And so we go talk to every company. So we're really blessed in that way, which is as good for me as it may be for the lieutenants. I mean, you have to ask them if it's any good for them. But it's great for Sergeant Major and I. What we share with them is the number one rule for being a junior officer, looking back on it, is you have to know your job. You must know your job. 
your technical and tactical responsibilities, you must know them. There is no making up for it with big personalities or curry favor with the Marines. You know, they expect you to know your job. Now, they have an immense capacity to forgive you for awkward leadership moments that come from not having enough experience yet. But if you don't know your job and they lose confidence in you professionally, it doesn't matter how popular you are. When things get real, when you're below decks and you're about to walk up to the flight deck and it's real, they're distracted by the fact that they wonder if you know what you're doing. And that's not what you need them. You need them thinking about pre-combat checks, pre-combat inspections, what their tasks are for that night, checking their night vision. They need to be thinking forward in time and not worried about you. So you have to make sure that you are sound. So that's the number one thing I would say. And everything else will take care of itself. If you're professional, technically and tactically sound, then you will find your voice as a leader. The machine is designed to help you find yourself. And you will find yourself. But if you're not technically and tactically sound, you're worried about all the other things, about having your Marines like you or whatever, that's unforgivable when the moment gets real. The second thing I would say is, it's just been my limited experience operationally that you never go into those moments thinking you had too much time. They seem to happen really gradually and all of a sudden. You wait and wait and wait and all of a sudden, boom, it's right there and it's happening for real. So the times you get to go to the range and all the little things, guard mounts, when you have guard duty and stuff, all those little things, uniform inspections, they all matter. Every single repetition matters. And you should treat it with great respect because you will wish you had more time every single time. Those are only things you learn with experience. And I don't think we do enough to contextualize to the Marines. Hey, this is why you're going back out to range 410 Alpha. You can't be good enough. You cannot be good enough. Take those moments to coach. And from a leadership perspective, every opportunity you have to work on your craft as a leader is money in the bank. I think that's so much different now than when our generation was lieutenants. I'm a huge proponent of social media and I'm immersed in it all the time for a number of different reasons. This podcast was one of them. So I've got my podcast account where I'm just following exclusively military stuff. I'll tell you what I see a lot of people commenting on. And I'll also tell young leaders, you should probably follow some accounts. There's some really good accounts out there that are actually conveying their knowledge in a way that you would never be able to convey knowledge 30 years ago. If you want resources for smart people, get on Instagram, start following some of these people. But one of the reoccurring things I see all the time as a joke or a meme is making fun of the young officer who's trying to be friends with his Marines or his men and women. And what a colossal mistake that is. Because I think what you just said is, know your job, be proficient. You've got to be as good at your job as you can be. Otherwise, people will doubt you. If you start with that, they will eventually, and I'm going to use air quotes here, like you. I think we conflate like. What we really want is respect. We want to be perceived as legitimate. For me, there are these moments, regardless of your civilian profession or your career, hopefully even your family and your personal life, that are really seminal moments. For me, my combat experience has been those four tours. I was always in the wrong place at the right time. I did nothing heroic or anything. You know, I just functioned, but I was able to watch and see unbelievable performances by the Marines. I remember following a squad from 3-5 down the street in this neighborhood called the Jolan District in the Second Battle of Fallujah. The battalion commander, Pat Millay, was very gracious, and he invited me out as his regimental intel officer, which is crazy. But the only thing I knew to do was go talk to the Marines and say, hey, this is what I'm about to brief. What do you think of this? I would literally crawl into a gun position at night or talk to a sniper team and say, this is what I'm about to brief the leadership. What do you think? And they would give me very straight information. So one day I'm following this squad, and they're probably not even 100 yards in front of me. And 
we're going down the street and this automatic weapons fire comes down the street. I tell the story of the lieutenants and everybody goes down. This squad leader stacks his squad perpendicular to the street and he starts turkey peeking around the corner and makes a quick decision, gives an order over his left shoulder to the squad behind him and out pops a saw gunner and an A gunner. And he just starts putting a max rate of fire down the street, gets fire superiority and just starts, then goes to a sustained rate. You know, pa, 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 pa. As that's happening, a small team, a rocket team comes out around him And I'm thinking he's going to fire down the long axis at wherever that RPK was. And he doesn't. He fires it like an oblique across the street into a big wall. Boom! The thing goes off and overpressure from that shot alone. As this huge cloud of dust and all this rubble starts following, the first fire team bounds out across the street. Second one goes. They set up a base of fire. And the squad leader picks it up and they disappear into this hole and they're gone. That whole thing took less time than it took for me to tell it. But that memory has stayed with me forever because I think about that sergeant or corporal He didn't get on the radio. He wasn't worried about anything else. In the moment, he immediately took charge. He had clearly established the authority within his squad, and he made a timely decision and moved at the speed of violence to get across that danger area and get on with whatever his task was. But he wasn't thinking about his lieutenant or his captain or his battalion commander. He was only thinking about what his job was, and he was not distracted at all. I realized this was a great blessing to me. This was right before I assumed battalion command. My job was to make that sergeant. In the decisive moment, I was to be irrelevant, and he was to be empowered. That's my job now. I was a lieutenant colonel by the time I learned that lesson. I wish I would have learned it earlier. I would have been better Marine. I hope people hear you say that and start applying that immediately. I heard a great quote. You're never judged by how many people you lead. You're judged by how many leaders you make. Yeah, Two days ago, Sergeant Major and I were, every time we have to go into an embassy when we travel, you know, we always have lunch with the MSG Marines, you know, hang out with them for a little bit and just hang out with them, you know, to spend time and to see young leaders emerging and thriving or wherever we go. It's just the juice. You see it and you're like, there's immense potential here. If I don't screw this up, there's something good can happen right here. I want to ask you some questions. This isn't an exciting topic for you, but it's an exciting topic for 99% of the listeners because 99% of them aren't generals, right? So they all want to know what it's like. What's it like being a general? What's the hard parts? What are the easy parts? What is it like? What's it like being a general? Think of it this way. At every level of any organization, there are primary tasks and goals. So how you lead as a company commander is very intimate. You know your Marines by their silhouettes at night, by the way they wear their gear. You know their sense of humor. You know know them personally. And you're personally present to affect the outcome of events. When I was a company commander, I probably had 200 Marines. By the time I was a battalion commander in Iraq, I had 1,800 people in this task force. You cannot do it that way anymore. So the environment compels you to evolve. If you try to stay with what you did as a company commander, you'll fail. That happens at every level. By the time you become a general officer, they call it a general officer for a reason. There are always people, shoot, by the time you're a company commander, there are people in your formation that know more than you do, that are better than you, That certainly by the time you're a battalion commander. General officer, you're a general officer. You are not a subject matter expert in any one thing. So you have to try to achieve, struggle to achieve an executive level perspective. So what we talked about before, understand your job is to have the institution make that sergeant. But you're also, the deeper into the game you go, you're involved with institutional level decision making. My current job, I have congressional engagement. I have to testify. I'm dealing with ambassadors when I travel. You simply have different tasks. And it sounds crazy, but it's no more overwhelming than it was for us when we were lieutenants. You just have to learn and grow. What it's like to be a general is you just got to know your position on the field and play your position. 
the real danger is you cannot be calcified in your thinking or your perspective on things. Like an operational tour, man, the environment is constantly changing and it's trying to tell you things. If you're trapped, if you're a prisoner by your experience, you're going to get bit. But if you're constantly paying attention to the environment as it's evolving, the environment and your Marines and your team will give you enough signals to help you make the right decisions. But if you become calcified in your thinking, you're going to make big mistakes. Every general officer starts out as a second lieutenant, as it stands right now, which means over the next 12 months, somebody coming out of TBS is going to be a general. Somebody who's down there right now who doesn't even know how to put his boots on right or her boots on right. What is it that you tell somebody that's listening to you right now in that position to start to train themselves not to become calcified? The Brits say the absence of the normal and the presence of the abnormal. That's when you're patrolling, constantly looking for anything that is out of the ordinary. That Coke can wasn't there before, or that shop is usually open at 1400, whatever it is. The absence of the normal, the presence of the abnormal. Your experience is constructive only if you use it constructively. But if you rush to a conclusion based on a pattern that you see emerging, you're trying to validate your predisposed conclusions. And if you do that, you're going to rush to failure. I'm notorious for this. I'll see a pattern emerging. I'm strong opinions loosely held. You know? So I go into a meeting. Now I have meetings with colonels that say, let's come off strong. I'm ready to roll. Let's go. You know? And I can just tell by their body language, it's time for me to shut up and listen because I'm making a mistake. Or my sergeant major will make eye contact with me. And the, okay, now it's time for me to stop and just listen for a minute. And if you allow the body to signal to you, they will tell you. You have talent around you, immense talent. So it's great that you have enough sets and reps out there to begin to recognize patterns. It's good. But that's just the beginning. It's a place for you to start to frame the problem correctly. Once you frame the problem correctly, to you and your team, hey, this is what we think the problem is. Now we get into problem solving. But man, if you lay on your experience to jump to a quick conclusion, you don't frame the problem correctly and you're answering the wrong problem and the environment evolves around you and and then you're playing catch up. And that's a bad place to be. The ability to think is such a crucial part to not only decision-making, but to leading and the, the tools that are available to a young leader. If you're a platoon commander and you've got a staff NCO as a platoon sergeant, if you're a staff NCO, you've probably got 12 years in at that point. And then you're a new second lieutenant, you come walking in. That tool that's available to you is he has seen this job through your lens for 12 straight years. What a resource is it? And the company commander's got a company gunny who probably 16 years in, all at the company level for the most part. You know, it's incredible, Dave, is that never stops. So I'll give you an example. My sergeant major, he became a first sergeant in 2009. So he has been on a command team straight since 2009. So he has had commanding officers as a first sergeant, you know, and then sergeant major. Think about that. For 13 years now, straight. I'm a three-star general, and I've had, since battalion command, five years of actual command. I didn't have command as a colonel because I was in Afghanistan and I was a reservist. And as you know, there aren't really commands for reserve colonels. I've had, you know, five or six years of command. He's had 13. And he's seen every different type of officer. I would be an idiot not to listen to him and consult him. Nowhere near the same thing. But when I had my battery, my first sergeant was, again, I'm using my air quotes. He was my best friend. He was the one that helped me steer the ship. Sergeant Major Ruiz does not want to be my best friend and would not allow himself to be. And I know this is just words, but I think words are important. He plays his position. I play my position. I have a profound level of respect for him, and I hope he has the same for me. But we are a command team. 
that's been my approach with sergeant majors in particular ever since. I mean, I've been really blessed. I had the last sergeant's majors, force level sergeant major Tom Eggerling, Eric Cook, who is now out at 3rd Marine Division. Scott Grade was a force level sergeant major, retired now. And Carlos Ruiz, force level sergeant major. For your listeners who don't know what that means, when you're an officer, you think sergeant major, well, they get promoted to sergeant major and they never get promoted again. Well, that's not really true. They get promoted with the scale and level of command responsibilities that they're assigned with. And at the top of that pyramid is called the force level. There's only nine in the entire Marine Corps to include the sergeant major of the Marine Corps. And I've worked with three of them. It's like you have a PhD in leadership with you every day if you pay attention and make the room for them. I'm talking to myself here. Make the room for them to help you make the right decisions. You used a term command. You've had all this command. That's a different word than lead, similar, but I've got to imagine that it becomes easier and easier to command as you achieve rank, but it becomes harder and harder to lead. Is that true? And how do you break out of that general officer bubble and really interact with your Marines? I mean, Lance Corporals can walk into a platoon commander and be like, hey, sir, what's going on? But I got to imagine that people just don't come wandering in your office and ask you what's up. First of all, your peers are important. You've traveled this journey with them. So the intimacy that every human needs, it's no different than TBS when you're with your peers or your buddies when you're lieutenants or captains. Those relationships will last the rest of your life. From that level, that intimate relationship still comes from your peers, even at the time. I don't know, like the Commandant and the four-star generals, it's tough. To answer your question directly, leadership is an intimate word, in my opinion. I work hard, Sergeant Major and I work hard to make sure that we understand and can empathize one of your podcast guests had probably used that word. It's very sincere. So for me, I look for ways to create encounters with young Marines. We're in Columbia as part of our job for Marine Forces South this week. We had lunch with the MSG Marines at the embassy in Columbia. They're not my Marines. They're not part of my command. It's just a way for me to sit down and have a meal with young Marines, corporals and lance corporals and sergeants and gunnies and staff sergeants, and wear them out. You know, like I'm older than their dad. You know, and they're sitting across from me, and I know what I look like to them. But if I just sit there at the table and wear them down, eventually you get to the real human, and then you hear the stuff you need to hear. Everywhere I go now, I'm kind of being handled. You know, so hey, get out of the car. Hey, so we're going to go to the conference room. We're going to show you a bunch of power pump. Blah, blah, blah. I'm on a movement to contact to find the unscripted moment. So I don't want to give away all my tradecraft here, but let's just say if, if I show up at your place and I say, hey, before we get started and go into the conference room, I need to find the head. You know, where's that? Oh, sir, I'll take you. You know, no, no, just tell me where it is. I'm good. Go down the passageway to the right. Okay, well, I'm going down the passageway. I'm going left, and I'm on a movement to contact. I'm going to open a door, and I'm just going to go in and start BSing with the Marines because they're not prepared. If I ask them a straight question and I set the environment right, if I do my job and set the environment, they're going to give me a straight answer every time. That's the juice. Right. It's the best. You know, and then like the Sergeant Major and I, whether it's Sergeant Major Cook sitting in some airport in the middle of the night in Tegucigalpa, Honduras or wherever, you know, we talk about that. We peel it apart. Hey, this is what I think. You know, what do you think? And, you know, this reminds me of a time. We, that's our life. So, yeah, we love the unscripted moment. Now, also, hey, that major worked his tail off or her tail off to prepare that brief. So you have to treat them with some dignity and respect, too, and listen. So it's a balance. You know, you can't just indulge the Lance Corporal. There's that lieutenant colonel, the lieutenant, the captain. They have something to share with you, too, if you do your job and allow that to happen. You ever get out there and pull in somewhere and just go out in the motor pool and, like, turn a wrench with a Marine? Can you do that kind of stuff, or it doesn't happen anymore? I could. 
But that's not being very respectful to the unit. Probably the best I ever saw is Major General Sparky Renforth, who's a huge influence to me. He's got a super common touch with the Marines, and he could do that. But I don't think he would. I haven't asked him about that. But it's just like, hey, there's a chain of command, and you're stressing them out. It's much better to just, within the context of a visit, talk to them. Or if you're in the exchange, you know, I look, I love talking to Marines. I just love hanging out with Marines. So you're not walking past me. I've seen enough that I know the evasive maneuvers, that are, and I'll move to the left or right to check them. And like, hey, what's going on, Marine? What are you doing? You know, <laughs> yeah. Inevitably, you're going to have that encounter without having to go into somebody's workspace. Imagine back when you were a battery commander, you heard that some one star was turning wrenches on your howitzers. You know, how disruptive that would be. Exactly. This is why general officers probably come into TBS and start their presentation with, I would give anything to change places with you right now, because they have those moments available to them. We don't think that they appreciate them. And those moments fly by in your career so fast. Next thing you know, you're a general officer looking back and saying like, geez, I'd give anything for a week of just hanging out in the gun park with the Marines. I started to getting into mindfulness and some stoic philosophies after my battalion command time in Iraq. I was in Newport War College and I started reading about people, you know, George Marshall and George Washington and others. And I've always admired the leader who can maintain an even keel and executive perspective all the time, regardless of what's happening. That's not me. I struggle with that. To be mindful and be in the moment, now I realize, hey, I got probably a year and a half left in uniform. And so I just try to be very mindful. I don't wish for something that can't happen. I try to be make sure that when I leave my house or my office or I go out into the passageway or show up off an airplane, I am present right then. And whoever walks in front of me is going to get the best I have in that moment. Sometimes I'm better than other times. I'm not wistful for having a do-over. I'm embarrassed on my previous performance, but I'm just trying to play out my time to be as good as I can be. They put me back in IOC, I'd probably die. They'd probably <laughs> kill me. Well, they probably don't have the rower machines there for you to do your physical fitness test, yeah, right? right, right, right. <laughs> it's funny. You've got a great story I want you to share back at your time when you were a battalion commander in Iraq, a story about a little girl named Amina. Will you share that story with everyone? So it's bizarre. By the time I got battalion command, I had over two years on the ground in Iraq. Two years of time actually on the ground. OF-1 had a really unique experience in Iraqi Freedom 1 through the initial invasion and then into the initial months of the insurgency in kind of the southern Baghdad area. And I learned a ton. And I was with exceptional Marines, just exceptional Marines. I learned a ton. And then, Lord works in mysterious ways, I ended up as the intelligence officer for Regimental Combat Team 1. We were going back to hand out soccer balls and candy in a town called Fallujah. And it went sideways almost immediately. And for those 14 months of sustained combat and multiple battalions rotating through. I mean, I got to study guys like Willie Buell and, like I said, Pat Millay and others, just great commanders. So by the time I became a reserve battalion commander, I had a really strong feeling for what I felt like we needed to do to succeed. And I spent two years working as the primary director, producer, whatever you want to call it, of the movie, constantly dictating and having a good piece in my mind. We are in our workup. We got activated and worked up getting a brief, and it was for the average battalion at the time deploying, it was 19 dead and 300 wounded at that time. And so it was very sobering, man. So I was very serious in the workup and calling a lot of shots. And then when you get into a place like Iraq, you have to transition to really allow your subordinate leaders to exercise their judgment, authority, and decision-making in a timely way. We got on the ground, and I just started realizing, man, I'm not even close to being the best Marine here. 
my company commanders and other Marines around me are, I mean, I had this like existential moment of crisis. I remember it where I'm thinking, okay, these guys are way better than me now. And what I really need to do is get out of the way, let them perform. Because I was insecure or whatever, quickly thinking, okay, that's BS. Every Marine, you got to play your position, exercise your authorities and lead from your spot, but you don't just get out of the way. So one night I get a call on the radio and this company commander named Kevin Gerard, now Colonel, an exceptional Marine, calls me and says, hey, I need you to meet me in town at this checkpoint. So, okay, we get our patrol up, get all of our gear on, and we walk out, exit, do our own patrol, meet up with his patrol. Walking up to him, I can still picture it in my mind's eye. He starts talking to me, he's taller than me, southern draw, this Georgia draw. Long story short, we found this little girl, she's three years old, and she has a congenital heart condition. I had a great battalion surgeon, pediatric thoracic surgeon who was on staff at Vanderbilt. French-Canadian immigrant, 60 years old already, of course, at the time that seemed old, but just a phenomenally gifted person and a strong personality. He had no problem challenging me. And he said, I've been working with Captain Nadeau. He was a full 06 captain, my battalion surgeon. And there's a COA here where we could get her back to Nashville and get her surgery and save her life. Looking at him, starting like at the top, start doing an inventory of him from the top of his helmet down, like you learn to do inspections as a lieutenant. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is like one of the best racehorses in the stall, one of the best leaders in the entire battalion who has now lost it. This is such crazy talk. I can't believe I'm standing in front of this guy that I admire and love, and he has lost his mind, and I'm going to have to pull him off the game here. That's so far outside the bounds of our guidance we've been given. I'll leave it at that. And then something inside of me was a voice like, just shut up and listen. Shut your mouth and listen to what he's telling. And he lays it out. He had done his work. He had done all the work to figure this thing out, and he had a viable color. So, okay, Kevin, appreciate you calling me out here. Carry on. I'll let you know. Turn around and walk back. I had a great executive officer named Kevin Clark, who went on to be the commander for First Marines and a phenomenal opso named Mark Lamelzer, retired as a colonel. And I walked back into this bound out school that we had as our battalion CP in full gear. And I said, hey, here's the deal. Kevin just laid this scenario out. We take this little girl back to Nashville, Tennessee and get her surgery and then bring her back. And I said, I'm leaning towards yes right now because I had plenty of time to contemplate this on the walk back, patrol back. I need you two to talk me out of it, and we're going to go at it. I'm going to go in my office, drop my gear, get my thoughts together, and I'm going to come back here, and we are going to spar. I gave them some time, and I walked back in, and they just unloaded on me. It reminded me of all the orders we've been given and all this other stuff. And these are two sharp, savvy, great Marines. Unloaded. My sergeant major was in there. And we went back and forth and back and forth. And finally, okay, look, I, I hear you. I understand what you're saying, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but we're doing this. So let's cover down, and let's get it done. Just like that, tactical, professional. They switched trails immediately. They had said their piece, and now we were aligned, and off we went. So we did all the work necessary. We went and sent kind of our fixer, a guy named Jake Falcone. He was our combo. Great personality, super mind. Sent him into the green zone, into Baghdad, to figure out exactly what we would need to get this mother and her daughter into the United States to have the surgery. We could not take the dad because his brother was on the watch list. He wouldn't clear. We learned this when we went to the green zone. So I went to my boss at the time, then Colonel Clarity, just retired as 3MF commander, Lieutenant General Clarity, and said, hey, sir, here's the deal. This is what we want to do. To his immense credit, of course, he flamed me. He looked at me and he basically said, okay, we'll go see General Gaskin, the division commander equivalent in Iraq at the time. And same thing happened. You know, it's like going back to TBS. The carpet dance commenced. And both of those, either one of them could have shut us down, either one of them, to their immense credit. We were way out on a limb. They said, okay, 
Because all we were really asking for was some CH-53s to get us to the border with Jordan. And then we had done a deal with the Jordanians. Turns out that the King's Praetorian Guard was going to meet the team at the border with Jordan and take the little girl and her mom and get them on a plane out of Amman. Because your AO is pretty close to that Jordanian border. We were essentially Euphrates River Valley, so it was in another AO. So that's why we had to fly there. Long story short, they did. And they took the little girl and the mom, got them to Nashville. The Marines had gotten with their families and their churches and their schools, and they'd raised all this money to help pay for this. Amazing that they did this. The family stayed with the Baptist church community in Nashville. There was complications on the surgery. We thought she was going to die. That was scary. Whole another story on this is we had to go and convince the tribes to allow us to take a woman and her child to the United States unescorted by a man. I mean, there was a series of tribal engagements. That was crazy. You can imagine at the time, Al-Qaeda is in there saying that we're there to rape their women and extinguish the Muslims. They're working against us saying, you're going to let the Christians take our women? What? There was some wild engagements with the tribes. And to their great credit of this one sheikh, the strongest sheikh in the valley, this Dragafi tribal sheikh who was later killed in a car bomb, he basically made the decision for the valley that we could take them. The surgery was successful. They flew the mom and the daughter back in, right into the soccer stadium in Aditha, where the police earlier in the war had been grounded up by Al-Qaeda and killed in front of the whole town. We land, and off the Osprey comes the mom and the daughter. I didn't want to be in there for the photo shoot and stuff like that. Kevin Gerard and his team were the ones that really came up with it. I was just standing out there in the security perimeter, you know, watching this. And I remember Iraqis coming up and literally putting their hands on the little girls. They couldn't believe it, that we would do that, and that she lived, and we returned her. And they couldn't make sense of it. The lesson that I learned there, we became convinced of in the middle of it all, was, hey, we were competing for the population with al-Qaeda at the time. We had been there for years, since 2007 or 8, when this all went down. And so this had been going on for five years. So they had heard everything we had to say. They had seen every civil affairs project we had to offer. And we had to do something to win that information war, truly demonstrate our values as a people, and to get them to a place where they could forgive us for the times when we didn't do great. This is Haditha. For that moment in time, I think it was effective. That demonstration, it clearly delineated us from Al-Qaeda, who we were competing with at the time. That's such an incredible story. And I know you won't like my characterization of it like this. So I'm going to do it anyway. That was such a display of moral courage by everybody that you just mentioned in the story. I think there are some real leadership lessons to be learned there about listening. I really loved what you said about you had to fight every fiber in your body to actually listen to this idea because you're immediately dismissive of it. And then you actually engaged sort of like a red cell to talk you out of it. And they didn't. Yeah, my consigliere, not just a red cell. I have a funny feeling if I asked you to talk me out of something, you'd be way more persuasive than they were with you. But I love the lesson of, hey, you got to listen to people. It's so easy to instinctively use your caveman brain and just dismiss something and cut somebody off. But it goes back to 20 minutes ago when we were talking about how critical it is for leaders to think and to be given the space to do it. I'm sure it wasn't my conclusion. Somebody said to me, well, here's the upside. Somebody had said something, I'm sure, that said Al-Qaeda couldn't match this. They'd have to come back in at night and do what they always do, which is threaten to kill everybody. And then here we are. If we pull this off, I wouldn't call it a decisive moment, but it is an impactful moment in this war. We are clearly saying, hey, this is who we are as a people. I remember them asking us, why would you do this in the tribal meetings? This is the daughter of a shepherd. This guy has got no status. He's got no rank in the tribes. We didn't ask you to do this. There's usually a quid pro quo. There's something for something. And we just said, no, we don't want anything. We're going to do this 
this is what the Marines want to do, and they're right, and that's what we're going to do. If you let us do it, that's what we're going to do. And they kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. I have no idea, all these years later, if anybody even remembers it in Haditha, Iraq, because they've gone through some awful things since then. But we got to the point where, during ISIS and everything else, the lower profile the whole thing was, the less people we had asking about it and following up, the better, the safer it was for the family. We went dark in 2011 or whenever it was, and all that started and stopped. Because all of our police officers that we had trained, they were all killed. ISIS came in one night and assassinated them. Many of the senior leaders we worked with were killed literally gunpoint to the back of the head and assassinated. Others had car bombs driven in. So it'd be getting to the point where like, hey, we need to let them go into hiding. And I'd love to someday know. I don't know if we could ever know, but the guys talk about that. Marines talk about it still. I'll bet you it was really impactful to your Marines as well. In this whole thing, because I haven't revisited this in a long time, but I do remember thinking, what's the upside for us? Because we gathered all the officers together right when we were in Camp Lejeune about to deploy and said something to them, you know, that we had a lot of active duty lieutenants that were given to the battalion because we didn't have enough officers, and telling them, okay, now your job largely is disproportionately now weighted in protecting the Marines from themselves. Meaning this is a caustic environment where our worst nature will come to be if we don't constantly remind ourselves of who we are as a team, what we believe in, and the risk we're willing to take to be on the right side of events meaning putting ourselves in harm's way to be on the right side of events and not be frightened to get on the trigger and do something we'll regret when we're at a barbecue in our 40s. And so I remember thinking and talking to the consigliere, you know, about this, hey, this is a demonstration to us. This is who we are as a people. And we'll talk about this. And the Marines will understand that. Later, they'll understand. These little things that we do is who we are and not the ones who are jumping on the trigger and doing things that we regret later in life. Yeah, it reminded me of something too. It's much less significant than what you talked about. But I think one of my favorite pictures that I have that I don't have in a frame is when I was in Somalia handing a bag of rice off the back of a UN food convoy truck to a woman who was probably 85 pounds and hadn't seen that much rice in her life and just looking at me like, this is mine. And I remember thinking to myself, I just saved somebody's life. Not heroically, factually with the food and everything. And I think that's more of an impactful memory for me than anything else. Yeah, the, the Marines all join because they have a disproportionate call to service. I mean, there's lots of Americans out there that have a call to service. The old joke, I'm sure you remember, it was when we used to fly in uniform, you know, people would come up to us at the airport and say, what? I was going to be a Marine, but, right, the, 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 the famous but. Yeah, so what an honor it is we get to serve with young men and women who actually did it. And they did it because they have a disproportionate call to service. They expect to be uncomfortable. And those moments, like you described, you have it they stick with them. It's who they aspire to be on their best days. I also watched her turn around and walk into a hut that was literally made out of straw. And now I look back at those pictures and I have pictures of all these kids sitting on this wall that were waving to us when we were driving by with the convoy. It's a really clear picture for the technology of disposable cameras back then. And thinking to myself, those kids in that picture are all 40 years old if they're still alive. We just talked a lot about how you got to yes on something. Here's a question from the context of a young leader who is at some point going to be challenged for the very first time with having to put their foot down and saying no. So we talk about all these tools like listen to your staff and CEOs, your platoon sergeants have all these things. But eventually you're going to get to a situation, you're going to have to say no to somebody. And it generally won't come to them at a time when they have a lot of time to think through it. Can you help prepare a young leader for this situation by sharing a personal experience where you either saw it happen or you had to do it yourself? Sure. 
The other place where I have to talk on a regular basis is something called Cornerstone. Cornerstone is where all command screened officers and staff and COs go to the service. You get selected for command, you go to this course called Cornerstone. We're supposed to talk about what we're responsible for in the Marine Corps. And then at the end, you give them your leadership advice. And what I always try to share is understand the limits of your authorities. What are the authorities of your job? And then also understand risk, the risk that you own and the risk that you think you might own that actually rolls over to other levels of the echelon. For young leaders, first, understand your authorities, understand what's expected of you. And for lieutenants and captains, you know, clearly anything to do with safety, anything that is counter to the cultures and value of the service, it's not optional. Liberate yourself from that, should I? It's engage. You must engage. If it's a safety thing, you know, engage immediately. Even if later on you overstepped and there's another officer out there or somebody that feels like you got involved in their unit, who cares? If you do it and you handle yourself professionally, no issues. Absolutely culturally. You know, if you see something that is misogyny, racism, stealing, you know, absolutely exercise your authorities. That is what is expected of you. Now, along the way, you have to practice. And sometimes it's imaging your way through it, you know, with your friends or with your company commander or your direct senior. It's like, hey, can I just talk you through a scenario here? Uh, I just want to make sure, you know, those are invaluable repetitions. Everybody from General Patton to, say, General Mattis, they'll talk to you about reading and how reading other people's experiences and paying attention to other people's experience, whether it's in the written word or watching carefully in your environment, so that you don't have to be the victim of firsthand learning yourself. Pay attention. It's really hard to watch another Marine fail, you know, but in every battalion, there'll be a lieutenant or a captain who fails. And man, understand the, the variables that went down. What happened? And talk about it, construct, not gossip. Immerse yourself in that scenario and understand what went wrong. Learn from that. All those patterns repeat themselves and you're armed with the experience, whether it's a book you've read, a mentor you've talked to, your peers. It's not a first time event. You're seeing it coming a little ways. You're not surprised. First, it starts with your authorities. Understand what's expected of you and, and the limits of your authorities. I think that's really valuable. I've said before that there's so much value that comes from reading, especially history. I also feel like there is a ton of value that comes from reading fiction because it gives you the opportunity to kind of imagine what would you do in a scenario that somebody else has made up. I totally agree. You're putting yourself in the roles of the characters and you're trying to figure it out. History is fun and definitely teaches lessons, but it doesn't exercise your imagination as well as saying, pick up some fictional, I mean, they're all over the place, right? It can be these World War III scenarios that people write about all the time. And you start thinking like, what would I do? What would I do? I find that really valuable in terms of seeing yourself through something. I'm not a digital native, so this is going to sound like the grumpy old guy thing. I don't believe you can get the same thing from a video game by reading a book. You have to create the characters and the dialogue in your head, and you are organizing it yourself. You're not being fed it as a processed thing. I know that that's harder. It's harder for me to read. I mean, we used to read like crazy, and now you got a device in your hand, you get distracted, let me Google that. Next thing you know, you're watching YouTube videos on puppies or whatever. So indulging yourself in an actual book and allowing your mind to work is the best workout mentally you can do, especially in the morning. There's an unlimited supply of fiction, so... Interesting that you made the comment about video games, but I'm wondering if you have an opinion on how simulations in wargaming and the efforts that are going on right now in all the services to actually use simulations. I'll tell a quick story as a setup for you, but way, way back when we used to call captain's career courses, the advanced courses, whatever, I got sent to the armor officer advanced courses and artillery officer. 
So there's like four Marines in the whole class and three of them are either LAR guys or tankers. And then there's artillery Dave Armstrong guy. It was part of my transition into the reserves to become a tanker. And there was this game that came out for PCs and this was mid nineties. It was called TAC Ops, T-A-C-O-P-S. And it was like a game you'd set it up and you could stage an armored battle and then it would AI run a Russian MRR at you, motorized rifle regiment at you, and you had to maneuver your forces and employ your weapons and run it up fire support. I used to just play that game all the time because it was like chess. You could leave it and then start it up six hours later and then play another iteration of it. And the computing power was so small back then that it could take 10 or 15 minutes for it to figure out what would actually happen. And I was playing this game and I got so into it that we had this huge culminating exercise at Armored Officer Advance Course where the entire class had to act as a task force all the way down to the driver level of a tank. And they had these networked simulators where there were tanks and you had computer screens in the tanks and everything. And the class had me be the task force commander. So here's the Marine artillery guy at Armor Officer Advance Course, task force commander. And we crushed it. It was great. And I look back on that. I'm like, had I never played that game, I would have never had the conceptual ability to do anything like that. Ever since then, I was like, imagination, playing, practice. You use the word imaging. I think that's really important. It is so, so constructive. I'm just wondering if you have a quick thought on technology and simulations and, and then using them for AARs, after action reports. Absolutely. Nodding my head, yes, when you were talking about that, because I remember after 9-11, I was convinced I needed more opportunities for repetitions and making decisions. And I found a very similar game, started playing it in my civilian time. You know, I'm playing the game, playing the game, playing the game to help me see things and make decisions and the speed of decisions. So yes, for tactical decisions and employment of systems, simulations are not only nice to have, they're critically important. I mean, when you start talking about naval strike missiles or HIMARS shots or whatever it is you're talking about, you're just not going to get enough opportunities to employ specific systems and then employ those systems within context to find out whether or not they're decisive. The era we're in right now is the Marine Corps is evolving based on the threat. There's no agendas here other than the threat. We've been given an order under the National Defense Strategy to orient against a specific primary threat. And so when you get that order, you orient on the enemy threat, you figure out what the intelligence is telling you, and then you look at yourself and you realize what you have to do, what kind of evolution is compelled in order to meet that threat. Inevitably, the type of force we're designing for the future will rely really heavily on simulations and gaming. Now, gaming can also be at the higher level. You start hitting major and field grade rank and you start getting into schools of advanced warfighting. Another really powerful tool is war gaming, where you set the table and the conditions, and usually there's senior mentors present, and you work through really complicated and wicked problem sets and through multiple turns and evolutions at the tactical and operational level with these senior mentors present and your peer group present, and you're collectively learning. So you've kind of touched on two things. Yes, simulation, which gets to individual or small team immersion, and then wargaming, which is collectively learning about how you're designing a force to first deter and then win against a specific threat. It's such an incredible tool to use. I appreciate sharing that. I know it's a little off topic from leadership, but it is an interesting thought. From a reserve perspective, the number one struggle you have as a reservist, especially as you advance, is to stay credible in your rank. And you have to find these asymmetric ways to work on your craft, to be present in the problem and to develop in ways that lead to that credibility in your rank. 
Well, speaking of technology, let's spend a couple minutes talking about social media, its acceptance, its lack of acceptance, how it's understood, misunderstood, the efforts you're using at your level, the efforts that the institution is using for information operations. I just find social media to be one of these new rapidly advancing opportunities. I use it a lot. I really like using Instagram. You've got a fantastic effort going on at Mar4Res with your Instagram site I see going on. You've been on Facebook Live to communicate directly with Marines. Talk some more about that because I know a lot of listeners that tune into the podcast are huge users of social media. You have been a huge influence on me. I've learned a lot from you. We're not digital natives, but I kind of got to the point where a couple things, you know, number one, we can't be talking about designing a force where we are trying to stimulate the initiative of our Marines to sense and make sense, make decisions at the speed of relevance and act and not allow them to be engaging. If we were in classrooms in the past and thoughts were flying around back and forth and challenges were being made, we'd think that's very stimulating and good. For my generation, I'll speak for myself, you can get uncomfortable in what you perceive as an unregulated environment. And things are happening that are, you believe, counter to the culture of the service and other things. A lot of times, the stray voltage that comes out that may make someone like me cringe where a Marine says or does something online is no different than the many formations I've stood at. Remember all the times you're standing there on a Friday afternoon, you got your platoon or company or whatever it is behind you, and you're waiting to secure. If you could read the minds of your Marines, you wouldn't like it. Well, now I understand that generational Marines, that's how they express themselves. Those internal thoughts are manifested virtually. It doesn't make them any better or worse than any other Marine that's ever stood in formation and had that thought. You got to be okay with that. And if I'm going to make the effort to get out there and be constructive and throw myself out there, all of the snarky comments that come from whatever it is we're trying to do are no different than the internal thoughts that the Marines have had in formations for my whole service. There will always be cynics, man. If I could offer anything to those leaders out there, emerging leaders, and I consider myself one of them, man, I'm talking to myself right now, is you have to be guarded against cynicism. Cynicism is self-defeating. So when I read a venomous post by a Marine or prior Marine out there that is just cynical, you're almost heartbroken for that person. You're like, wow, that person's in a bad place. We are rowing hard, and this person's chipping in from the sidelines and just being cynical. For me to reach the organization, sometimes the imagination of the Marines is your best ally or your worst enemy. So I'm trying to stoke and feed the imagination of Marines on what the future of service looks like. And I'm also trying to put away the gossip and the rumors that have also been around since you know Caesar's legions and say, hey, listen, I'm about as close to the top end of the service as you're going to hear from. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is where we're succeeding, and this is where we're struggling. And these are the future opportunities that I see, and I'm hoping you're firing the imagination. And to reach that group, I have to make an effort to be out on Instagram and Facebook. And let me tell you, it is so uncomfortable. I've been walking in front of any formation now and feel like I walked into my own living room and just sit down with Marines and talk. But virtually, for me, it's really uncomfortable. I'd be on Facebook Live. I'm not comfortable doing that. What I've found is the junior Marines, like I just came back from Bogota, Colombia, and we took a corporal with us. And he is from Comstrat. Not only is he there to take pictures, okay, that's mildly interesting. But to have him experience everything we're experiencing and then not put left and right limits on how he needs to relate that experience to other Marines, that's the value. A very good NCO 
that tells the story through his own lens and the palette on which he paints that picture is Instagram or whatever he's going to choose to do, I got to be comfortable with that. And if I can't be comfortable with that, then how can I be comfortable with some lieutenant that's out there in the island chains making individual decisions that are meant to confound and defeat artificial intelligence of our adversary? And so I remind myself of that and get myself into a position where, yeah, there's going to be some cringy moments. That's okay. We're in the human being business, man. It's sloppy. And I'm okay with that. It doesn't mean that people aren't held responsible when they knowingly violate the oath or whatever. There are boundaries always. But as far as it being sloppy and messy, I'm okay with that. I look at it from the perspective of it is truly a tool that can be used as signals intelligence all the way down to you. You could log on to Instagram and see what people are saying and get a sense for how people are reacting to something like that. The opportunity set there from information operations has not even begun to be exploited or leveraged by the military. We're in the information age. So we must see the information domain as a primary domain. We talk about this all the time. Man, we have some immense talent in the reserves in this regard. And they've taught me so much. I think I read something you posted um, shortly after the tragic events of the evacuation in Afghanistan. And you had reminded people, be mindful of who's out there commenting. There's a specific percentage of comments that are generated by bots of our adversaries. There are entire units that are dedicated to get inside of chat rooms and be divisive in our chat rooms. And so we're always competing for the soul of our Marines and the American people. Sitting by and taking a passive stance and letting that battle happen, you can't do it. Even if it's somebody my generation, man, you got to get in there and fight it out. You got to fight it out. doesn't mean you're always going to be right and you're going to take some shots, but that's okay, man. We're in the business of winning fights. Information is a bigger fight than it's ever been before. We also, when I say we, I mean the users of social media, and I'm also talking to the veteran community right now too. Like, do not become a pawn in our enemy's efforts to attack us. The cliche, cynical, hey, we need to keep our tanks. Really? Based on what intelligence briefs are you getting? Great point. Now I'm paying attention as I'm learning the game. There are so many Marines out there that have these accounts that are posting, that are engaged. I love it. I mean, I learned from them. You've got company commanders and, and, uh, and operations officers and people out there that are posting, and I learn a ton from what they're posting. It's awesome. Is it sloppy and does it make me nervous at times? Of course. Again, I remember being in Nexo and I put my bag out one night by the water bowl at range 400. It was a really dark night. And I've been with the company for a while and that's why I knew most, all the Marines. And I'm laying there on the ground in the dark and it must have looked like a pile of rocks because the Marines didn't see me. And they would come fill their canteens. And I get to listen to all these conversations between Marines. I remember like literally putting my hand in my mouth. Marines are hilarious. But also hearing some things that uh, really inform me. So you have to be okay with the fact that it makes you uncomfortable because the Marines are fighting to figure out what they believe and what side they're on. And that's okay, man. It's okay. I will tell you this too. You've got a lot of folks in the reserve community at the individual level who are embracing social media as a tool to educate and inform others about things that they're experts in. Off the top of my head, there's an INI first sergeant down in your weapons company of 123. I think it's either Austin or San Antonio. He is on social media. He's the first sergeant down there. And he is constantly educating Marines on everything from tactics, weapons employment, camouflage. And every Friday, he is posting something about field expedient antennas or things that like an O3 can read this thing and be like, hey, when I go to the field next time, I'm going to build this kind of an antenna and I'm going to try it out because signals intelligence and your electronic footprint are going to become a much bigger deal in the next fight anyway. 
I can find myself learning so much. There's people on there talking about weapons. There's an account called Heavy Equipment Operator or something. And all he's doing is talking about like towing vehicles and using cranes and stuff. It's all really interesting to me, but like you can really learn from these people. They're not our generation. They're majors and staff sergeants. These are the people who are going to grow up in the next 10 years and be running the Marine Corps. And their embracement of this is huge. Yeah, there's an open reservist corner. I'm constantly learning. I'm so proud of them. We both know there's this irrational call to service that's within our Marines. It just is. And in the reservists, it's different. And it's even in some ways more challenging because you're balancing all these things. But man, I am so proud of them. Yeah, there are sometimes, of course, when I look at like, well, he's got that wrong. But I've got 30 whatever years in. And I am in all the meetings. So instead of thinking, oh, that's wrong, I should think I have to do a better job of communicating with all the folks out there who want to coach. When you say, why are you doing these things? I'm interested, man. I want these leaders to coach me on how I can do a more effective job of giving them the information they need so that they can coach forward. That's what I'm looking for. man. I also think it's a huge retention tool too, because you think back to the day when you and I got promoted to any rank in the 90s, right? You got promoted to captain. You probably have a single Polaroid picture that somebody took of it and that's it. Nowadays, somebody gets promoted, you can have your comstrat people put on the account, like, congratulations to Sergeant so-and-so who pinned on staff sergeant today. He's going to share it with the entire family, and it's going to come up in their memories. You talk about a way to make people feel good, tell the universe about their accomplishments, and you can do it with social media. It's such an incredible tool. We do it all the time. You make a great point. You know, since I've been a battalion commander, I've been trying to coach my officers about fit reps and awards. When you're writing a fit rep or award, you're writing to two audiences the future promotion boards of that Marine. So you have to contextualize their service and don't just use platitudes and BS, you know, read books, find your voice, but paint a picture of potential for that Marine and then understand how you're ranking them numerically. So the data matters. But then the other audience is you're writing the family history of that Marine. Imagine their grandchild reading their dad's award or their grandpa's award or their grandma's award and put some heart and soul into it. Speak to the grandchild. And if you do that, you just might inspire that Marine to continue to serve. It's worth the effort. And now I'm learning that about social media too. The digital dust goes on forever. Horrifying, but you know. Right. You were just talking about family legacy and everything. I have two more questions for you. The next one is I'm interested in having you talk a little bit about what it's like to be an infantry officer these days, because if you reflect back to your 0302 lieutenant time, not only from your perspective now as both a general officer, but also as a father who has a son who is a second lieutenant 0302, what's different and harder for him today than it was for you when you were in his shoes? Obviously, I'm immensely proud of my son. All the lieutenants I get to see. I know it sounds like a cliche. If you're a lieutenant listening to this, you're like, this can't be sincere. I wish I communicated more effectively how proud me and my peers are when we see these officers who've made this choice. But since I was a second lieutenant who got sent out to 7th Marines, my son is a second lieutenant who got sent out to 7th Marines. Like me, he believes he's being punished by the universe, and that's why he's in 29 Palms. Gets in his car and he drives to the coast to visit his buddies on the weekends, just like I did. So there are some real similarities. When he was in TBS, you remember him telling me one time, Dad, you know, I don't know, Fox Company, we're having a problem passing the word. And I think I shared that with you. And it's hard not to laugh out loud. You're like, when you hear that, you're like, oh my God. Well, that joke's been carrying on for two years now between us, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So there's some commonalities there. 
But the difference now is, I remember when we got on air contingency or something like that in the early 90s, like I was a captain and uh, I got placed on some air contingency unit or on alert and I was given a pager. That was a big deal. I have something with me 24 hours a day that keeps me in the game. But the difference now is cell phones and the expectation of connectivity. When one of your Marines, you know, gets drunk in the barracks or whatever, you know, whatever happens, what always happens, car accident, DUIs, whatever happens, human being business, it happens. You're immediately notified and you're expected to lead in the moment. For you and I, when we were lieutenants, we'd come in or we'd get a, maybe a call from our buddy in the morning who might have had duty, said, hey, one of your Marines got in a fight or whatever. And you're like, okay, I appreciate that. And you lead that way. But now it's almost like as it's happening, these young officers are getting called. And it's like, what do we really expect them to do about it? We have an officer the other day, the duty NCOs. Do we really need to be having people 24-7 trying to lead in the moment? Are we setting ourselves up for mistakes? Of course, when tragedy happens, 100%. But in the day-to-day business, I wonder, they got to breathe too. The institution is set up to handle this. Sometimes I worry about that as I kind of pay attention a little bit. But in general, you know, I guess from a father's perspective, when I watch what's going on in Ukraine right now, my professional perspective has always been objective in the past when these things happen. But now, of course, and maybe it's just a function of getting older, you know, you think about the potential ramifications and things like that. But, But overall, I listen to what He's doing with his company, the way he talks about his company commander, he respects him and admires him and has a good, hard relationship with him, just like I did with my, his peers, his Marines, the way he talks about it. When I listen to those things, I feel like we're fine. From a dad's perspective, I try to, like I do to every young officer, is try to contextualize the frustration they feel that I've been able to sort out because I got a few more laps around the track. But I do that for everybody not patronize them, because what they feel and what they're experiencing for the first time is very real. But if I can offer a little context and have them see beyond the next hill a little bit and contextualize the moment, it helps to alleviate some of the frustration. And that's my position on the field now. Well, I know how proud you are of him, not only because you've told me one-on-one, but also because I know Jack and I've met him and I wish he hung out with me more. I like him that much. So, uh, <laughs> you know, he's my favorite knucklehead. You know, I have to be careful because I really believe that he is a reflection of the people that we attract. Now, what I love, I've come to understand diversity more. You know, diversity has become such a weaponized word. And now I truly understand the value of it. The problem sets that we face are so complex. And I go back to my operational experience. The reason I may have been part of units that succeeded is that there was really valuable perspectives that we've talked about on this podcast that you listen to that help you frame the problem effectively and then help you understand options. And if everybody in the room is like you, you're getting a narrow slice of perspective to solve these really complicated problems. But when you invite in people with different backgrounds, different strengths, inevitably you see the field in a much more clear way. You frame the problem from the outset in a much more effective way. And you inevitably become more efficient and effective, more lethal, more survivable. I've internalized that now. And I know people have called me the woke general or whatever. I I don't care. And my friends are the same way. People are skeptical about it, but I'm just telling you that my peers, the people that are still in the game, we get it. And so when I go to TBS and I spend time with the lieutenants, it's a thrill. We go to the classroom, then we go to the hawk. We go to the bar with them. You learn so much by listening to them. They're really aggressive in their questions. I love it. Do they drink beers around you in the Hawk? 
I don't drink there. A minority of them will have a beer in their hand. But I bet if I had a beer in my hand, more would have a beer in their hand. I guess I can test that premise at some point. But The diversity thing is interesting because what I would say about that from a leadership perspective is diversity can evoke a lot of emotions, just the word, right? To me, it's about diversity of thought. The diversity of thought comes from the diversity of unique and individual experiences that come from the more traditional use of the word diversity. And the more you can surround yourself with the diversity of thought, the more inputs you have as a leader and go back to your story about Iraq, where you had your red cell of your XO and your OPSO, you were seeking diversity of thought. And that's just so important as a leader to search out the diversity of thought. And I have to remind myself now, Dave, is that I'm not doing that for theater. Like I have to get myself to a position where, hey, you feel pretty strongly about this, even though you're, uh, in fact, my Sergeant Major called me on this recently. I invited counter opinions and I began to debate each one. It's like, hey, well, why are you doing that? Why even invite the opinion if you want to debate everybody? Because you're the senior person in the room and sooner or later, they're just going to stop. And he brought me up short and I was like, you're right. And so you have to be in a place where if you're trying to cultivate diversity, you're setting up the mechanism this is all about winning fights, man. I hate to be crass, but we're in the business of getting in and winning fights. So the other piece of that I would offer is I've been watching IOC, you know, Infantry Officers Course, which for me personally was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I'm not just saying this. I really believe this. It's harder now than when I went through. So show me where we're compromising. This is the calcified, helpful opinions that you get from people who probably aren't as informed as they should be. Show me. Show me one place where the standards are being compromised when it comes down to warfighting. Now, I'm sure there are examples. I just don't know of them myself. I guess I'm part of them now. I'm sitting here talking to you today, this morning. I can't think of one. I'm sure they're out there. I just can't think of it. The danger is when we or anyone finds themselves talking about everything else except fighting, that's when this thing can become a problem. But as long as we're focused on lethality, the mission, doing what the Marine Corps and what all the branches of the services are supposed to be doing. Conversations about diversity and everything else is fine, so long as it's in the context of lethality. When it comes from Congress, you know, these are real concerns from Congress. To the Marines out there, I remember being in Iraq early and a congressional delegation would come through and we'd think, oh my God, what a pain in the, you know what, to have to deal with this. I have matured so much more. We take that oath every time we get promoted. The oath to the Constitution in the founding documents of our country, what makes us different. I just was having this conversation in Colombia, a nation still at war inside its own borders. What separates us as professional militaries is that we willingly accept the civilian authority over our armed forces. Congress is playing its position. And it doesn't mean I always have to agree individually. You know, I have very candid conversations with members of Congress and with their staffs when I'm invited to. But at the end of the day, as a free people, if it's important to our government, we have to find a way to make it work. Now, is it hard? Yeah. Well, the great thing about being in the Marine Corps is hard's authorized. So let's get on with it, man. And so long as it doesn't make us any less lethal or survivable, then so be it. Do you have to be comfortable with it? No. Get over it. Just like you're uncomfortable with social media, but you're getting over it. Trying to, man. I'm trying to. You made the comment about the oath. Let me just jump back to that for a second, because somehow I was able to clear security and come to your promotion with General Berger promotion to lieutenant general. And he made the comment about how legally in a promotion ceremony, you don't have to redo your oath of office. Your oath of office that you take as a second lieutenant is the, and that's it, right? You took the oath, you made an oath, but we do it ceremonially to remind everybody about the oath that you took. And that's why we do that over and over again. So last question, and I've kind of held this one to the end because for the five people still listening, I think they want to know the answer to this. 
when we talked about your biography and how you got out after 9-11, you came back in, which is very similar to me coming back in. You've obviously had a very successful career. You're a lieutenant general in the Marine Corps. You're a fantastic commander, fantastic leader, and fantastic friend. And you're on active duty now, but do you ever regret getting out? No. In fact, I'm very joyful about the fact I chose to be a reservist. If you could offer me any job in the Marine Corps, I would ask for the one I'm in because I truly understand the complexities of being a professional reservist. By that, I mean you take your oath seriously, you take your responsibilities seriously, you struggle to balance these really complex life. When you're in your 20s, it's not so hard. Life's pretty simple, right? But when you're in your 30s, you know, or early 30s, late 20s, you start having children, maybe. You're starting to reach some success professionally in your civilian profession. You have more obligations in your society because you're a natural leader and people come to you and you start coaching teams or being part of your church groups or whatever your thing is. Your relationships become more complicated. You go into your 40s, it gets even more difficult. I always use the analogy, something called a pro forma. It's like, you know, business model where you have an Excel spreadsheet typically and you put in all these variables and then H11, that little box, gives you your answer or gives you what hopefully you're looking for. And if you're running a pro forma business model on staying in the reserves or getting out, every single time H11 is going to tell you to get out. And what keeps our Marines in is this irrational call to service. And my job is to make sure I am communicating that your service is valued. We need you. That sounds like such a bumper sticker. But if you know everything that I know, what I'm telling you is we need you to stay. And I know the future of the reserve force we're trying to build. And if you've got talent and conviction and passion, there's going to be incredible opportunities. Not only that, but service is going to become much more permeable between active and reserve. When you and I were coming up, there was only one way to go. You get out, you get in the reserves, but you're never going back. So now what we're finding with the blended retirement system and everything else, it's going to be a much more blended. And that's a good thing because what a top level reservist brings, you know, if she works for Google, let's say, or Ernst & Young or somebody like that, she's going to come in and she's going to bring an entirely different skill set to her job as a logistician or a pilot or whatever. Or he's going to come in and he's going to have a unique ability to understand interesting dimensions of a problem that he can help solve. And that's additive. And in the information age, we simply will not be able to create the level of expertise and the capacity that we will need to deter and then win if we have to future battles. So we're going to need that civilian experience. And Marines are going to go and they're going to want to do it anyway. So it's an exciting time in the future. And there are immense opportunities coming up. The Marine Force Reserve, the organization that I currently lead in Marine Forces South, we blended those commands. And you're going to get sustained opportunities in Southcom now to identify and develop and retain talent by deploying in small elements to fulfill our mission. There'll be plenty of work to go around. So for me personally, when you ask me, do I regret getting out? Do I wish I could have had a map or something like that? No, not at all. I mean, I feel incredibly blessed. You know, I got a my wife and my family have supported me. I've had a great civilian run, successes and failures that have helped make me, and I'm in the exact right job. Glad to hear you say that. I also concur with your sentiment about the reserves, and I encourage everybody I ever talk to, I just say, hey, give it a try. Try it out. At least do it. Like It's an at-will contract if you've served your eight years, essentially, or you've served your four years. Let me offer you some data, Dave. So there's a lot of people listening to this will be active duty officers and staff and COs and NCOs. So the Marine Corps has a terrible talent retention problem. Now, here's just a data point. It takes 1,000 corporals to make a single meritorious sergeant on active duty. It's incredibly 
hard to become a meritorious sergeant. And for those out there that probably know, you know, ask a first sergeant what a meritorious sergeant board is like and how the first sergeants and sergeant majors go to war with each other. You can hear the clashing of swords and shields if you listen closely behind the door. And so we have the individual ready reserve, 66,000 people. The vast majority of them are coming off active duty on the back end of a four by two contract. We have more meritorious sergeants in the individual ready reserve, meaning they were they achieved meritorious sergeant on active duty. We have more meritorious sergeants in the individual ready reserve than every active duty wing and division put together. Think about that. You talk about quantitatively, everybody knows that we lose a lot of Marines every year. It's just the nature of the service, so to speak. When the commandant talks about aging the force, what he's really saying is we need to imbue in our Marines a more advanced level of skill and capability than we have right now. And the only way we know to do that is to season them more, train them as they go and retain them. We're hemorrhaging an incredible number of Marines, but we're also hemorrhaging an incredible amount of talent. Same thing goes for the officers. Then you look at it and you think, okay, we have an incredibly high number of prior Marines serving in other services and in the National Guard. There is a data out there that says a third of the National Guard are prior Marines. The Guard will say that. That's over 100,000. We have a problem as a service of undervaluing continued service in the Corps by joining the reserve component. What I'm saying to you is, man, we need you. And for my personal life and my friends, we have had an incredible life and that fulfillment of service. And of course, the best thing about it is we still get access to Marines all the time. So I just invite you leaders out there listening to this, professionally educate yourself about the opportunities that represent continued service in the reserves and how you communicate that to your Marines, because we simply have to do better. I've got to imagine that listening to those statistics where attention isn't a Marine Corps Reserve problem. A retention is a function of a poor experience on active duty, leading to them not wanting to join the reserves when their contract is up. We know from polls that Marines will leave active duty thinking that the only legitimate way to continue to serve as a Marine is on active duty. As strong as we are culturally in some ways, it also can be a prohibition against evolution. You know, we have these strong feelings that have gotten in our way in the past. I mean, our own history with racial injustice, there is a, a strain of misogyny we've been trying to extinguish forever, and we're fighting that out, and we're fighting it. Sometimes we have to acknowledge that this culture exists, it's not constructive, and it's not informed. I mean, you and I both know plenty of our friends that, you know, in our generation, we got out and we served full tours, full careers in the reserves. And it's been an incredibly enriching part of our lives. And we are the exceptions. People don't understand the opportunities that are represented by continued service and how to do that. They think it's a binary choice. If I stay in the reserves, I can't do all these things I want to do in my civilian life. That's not true. We know we have to get better. And this is my way of trying to communicate with your listeners. And look, for those of you that aren't Marines, I apologize. I've had an incredible career where I've worked with the 101st Airborne in Afghanistan, the 82nd Airborne and others. And I'm fully aware of the valor and commitment and sacrifice and tenacity of other forces as well. Please don't misunderstand this. Friends that are in the Army, who I still talk to regularly, my friends that are in the Navy, you know, these are conversations that we have with each other. I don't think there's anything terribly unique about the Marine Corps and some of these lessons learned. As somebody who went from active duty into the reserves and then spent 20 years in the reserves, essentially, I'll say this about my time in the reserves. If there's a bunch of things that you don't like about active duty that are bothering you because they're, I'm just going to use this, they're bullshit, can't stand the bullshit, and you can't wait to get out. 
one of the greatest things about the reserves is there is not enough time for the bullshit. (laughs) There's just not, right? You come in for a drill weekend, there are none of these silly games that get played. There's a training schedule, you're executing it. You're kind of hoping that you hit 70% of the training solution that you're trying to accomplish for the weekend. But there, there is simply not enough time for any of that. I think you've romanticized it a little bit. Think of it this way. 25% of the reserve force is not under contract. Meaning they're not obligated. Anytime they can leave. Those are folks that are your billet holders, your sergeants and above. Very few of them are actually under contract. Those are the folks working with their inspector and instructor partners. They're not interested in that sort of thing. They're staying around because they want to be around the Marines and the mission. That's a difference. Some of the institutional bureaucracy, which is inevitable in almost any institution, there's more defenses up against that, but it's still government service, but it's service. A great way to finish up. I will reiterate that I had the best time in the reserves. I tell everybody who will listen to me and give me a platform to talk to them about you know, going in. It's a really unique opportunity to continue to serve because here's one thing I know about Marines is whether they had a good experience or a bad experience on active duty, they all joined because they wanted to serve. This is the opportunity to continue to serve. It's different. They can't not be different. Gerald Berger and I actually talked about this. He sees the value in different. He likes the fact. Yeah, so do I, of course. You know, but, but sometimes when you know, early in our reserve career, you're trying to explain there is a difference here. But now institutionally, like we were talking about with diversity, it's appreciated. And we're acknowledging that it's a value add that we must have. The message here is to folks is demystify the reserves. And everything that you love about being a Marine, meaning Marines, and the mission are available to you. And your service is incredibly valued. We need good leaders. The parents and teachers and communities that give us reserve Marines deserve the same level of leadership that we expect on active duty. And if you've got that in your heart, then there are people out there like me and legions of others that are dying for you to come in and accept the challenge. It's really true. And there is a huge opportunity there. You could really embrace social media and show these active duty guys some of the highlights of being in the reserves. I'm trying to. My peers and I, you know, they're all great partners to me. You know, the MEF commanders, friends and peers of mine, and we're all trying to do the same thing. Again, we're learning this. We weren't born with this skill. So that's why I love these channels, Instagram channels and others that are out there that are doing this. We're learning from you. That Instagram page, for those of you who are interested, is simply USMC Reserve. 140,000 followers. So you got 140,000 people listening to everything you say. It's great. And here's something else that's really cool about too, because I just pulled the page up off to the side here. This gives, I don't know if they're still called combat camera, but- Comstrat. Okay, right. They have an ability to show off their artistic, creative work in a way- Oh, they're incredible. Combat camera guys, when we were in, like maybe you saw a couple of black and whites up in the battalion CP and that was all- You, you have had. to treat them like musicians or, you know, I go in there and I tell them, hey, listen, I'm not telling you how to do it. I'm just telling you what the desired end state is and I'm comfortable with whatever you do. So go whip it on. And they, you know, I check it when I come home from work and I look at it and it's almost always, I'm like, wow, how did they come up with that? I get a chance to travel with them and learn from them. And nobody's coming to your office and saying, hey, is this okay to post, sir? I mean, they're off doing their thing. It's maneuver warfare, man. We have got to be distributed and maneuvering constantly in the information domain. So USMC Reserve, 140,000 followers. They're posting stories all the time. They have posts all the time. Don't know if it's set up to where you can tag or share with that account, but definitely check that out when you get a chance. I've seen you, sir, on there with some videos of things, and I just find it to be a really fascinating account. Well, thanks, Dave. We're doing another one this week on the campaign plan, 
where Sergeant Major and I are going to do a town hall. We're going to try and explain, hey, this is what we're building. This is what the future's looking like. You know, we're going to get back on the water. We're going to build boat squadrons and things like that that I think the force doesn't know about that, you know, leaders probably will be interested in. And then, hopefully, they challenge us with questions. They challenge us, and we can kind of spar a little bit for the benefit of everybody. Well, here's something else I'll throw out for social media. Someday you'll take your final CFT. I'll come down and do it with you, and they can record it. I think it's going to be probably broadcast around the world. It's really going to be exciting. Yeah. That's good. Just find somebody who weighs a lot less than me right now for me to fireman's carry. (laughs) All right. Lieutenant General Dave Bellin, Mar 4 Res. We started out talking about his time at OCS and TBS and IOC and how he took a risk of wanting to become an infantry officer and was messed with and told maybe he was going to be a Hawk Missileer and then ended up at 2-7. Tells a great story about how he took his first platoon up to Canada recognized for the first time in his career, like, hey, I, I got to sit my guys down and tell them we've got work to do. There was a great comment and conversation about his first commanding officer, how he learned that there's a huge difference between walking the walk and looking the part, and then went on to a story about his time at Bridgeport during Winter Mountain Leaders Course. And, uh, you know, sir, I think you told a great story there about how you had made a really bad decision on two hours of sleep even when your enlisted Marines were kind of signaling to you that it was a bad decision and you just weren't listening and you retired and shaking your head saying, I regret it to this day. And and then you followed it up with another story that I thought was really great from a leadership perspective about how you had lost your temper when you were out in 29 Palms during the mop exercise. And we went on to a conversation about how you know losing your temper and making an ass of yourself and yelling is really counterproductive to solid leadership. So make sure young leaders are thinking through, figuring out when they're reaching that stage, taking a deep breath, maybe counting to 10 and pulling yourself back from that. And we talked a little bit about how emotional energy is really important to preserve and that when you get upset and you start yelling that you're really kind of just feeding your own ego and how unproductive that really is. I loved your story about when I asked you the first time that you were really proud of yourself and you you talked about the Navy Achievement Medal, because that is not the first time that that topic has come up on this podcast uh, Vice Admiral Ron Boxel talked about his favorite award was his Navy Achievement Medal because he thought he did more for that than anything else. And that's the second time I've heard that on here. You talked about Frank Topley and what a huge influence he was in your life as a commanding officer. We talked about your time as a major in Anazaria, and you started to talk about how important it was to not fall prey to, I'm not good enough to do this because I haven't truly been tested and how important it is to play your position And then we talked about how can people actually walk themselves through the removal of anxiety and not having to wait to combat in order to feel like you're a good enough leader. And you had two really great comments, which was one, you just simply just must know your job. Two, never go into those moments thinking that you have enough time. And you didn't say it like this, but I said it. I wrote down, shit happens fast. And so don't ever rely on the luxury of time because things can change in a moment. Just ask anybody in the 82nd Airborne right now. You spent some time talking about an experience that you had when you were following a squad through 3-5 through Iraq and how you just watched either a corporal or a sergeant who was leading a squad just take action, take charge, and that his ability to do that was embedded in the authority that he had created with his squad by knowing his job, and he just did it. Didn't get on the radio, didn't call anybody, and you said that was the moment when you realized that one of your jobs was to make that sergeant. I think that's such a huge point to make to junior leaders is that, and I said it before, you know, it's not a function of how many people you lead, but how many leaders you make. And I do think that that's a huge component of leadership is making sure that you are making those sergeants and those subordinates better leaders. You also talked about the dangers of becoming calcified. And you had a great statement about make sure that you're always looking for things that are out of the ordinary is another way. 
the absence of the normal and the presence of the abnormal is something to always kind of keep in mind. You spent some time educating everybody about how force level sergeant majors are different than regular sergeant majors. We talked a little bit about command versus leading in the bubble and how you used your movement to contact to find those moments to get together with Marines and actually find out what was going on and have have those moments where you were learning about things. And I will tie that back to the comment that came up later about the diversity of thought. I, I think that's your mechanism for finding that diversity of thought is going out on your movement to contacts. That's a great leadership trait as well. We talked about the Amina story. Did I get the pronunciation there right? Yeah, Amina. Amina, right. How you learned about enabling subordinates to make decisions. At one point, I wrote down that you said something along the lines of, I'm not even close to being the best Marine here, but that you quickly realized you had to get that out of your head because everybody has a position to play. You went into the story about how the company commander called you and they went through the courses of action with the battalion surgeon. And one of the things that you learned from that was just shut up and listen. There was this moment of clarity where you were like fought your instincts to cut everything off because it sounded so outlandish. You incorporated some diversity of thought there by grabbing your XO and your OPSO and saying, talk me out of this. And they unloaded on you. And then you said, okay, you've said your piece, cover down, we're going to get this done. You empowered some people to get it done, went up the chain of command, laid out the course of action for everybody. And, and what you actually ended up realizing as a lesson was that you were competing for the population against Al-Qaeda. And for years and years and years and all the efforts to do civil engagement, this was an opportunity to truly win the information war in a way that they couldn't outdo and how impactful that was for you and obviously impactful for somebody else's life as well. I asked you the question about saying no, and you talked about two things about understanding your authority. One was, as a young leader, safety. It's just not optional. You must engage, is what you said. And also imaging your way through things by mentally practicing. We talked about the use of simulations and the value of fiction, definitely the value of nonfiction, but the value of fiction as well. We had a great conversation about social media and embracing that, how it's really important to fight the battle of cynicism and also really important to not help our enemy out. I'll say it like this. Our enemy have the equivalent of Delta Force in their information operations. If you think Delta Force and Navy Development Group, you think that they're really good at their jobs. Well, guess what? There's a counterpart to that on the other side, and it's in their information warfare, and they're as good at that as Development Group is at going and killing bad guys or Delta. We talked a little bit about Jack, how proud you are of him and the similarities, the difficulty that he must be having that you and I didn't have, which is leading in the moment based on all this direct access to information, timely information all the time, diversity of thought, how important it is to maintain our lethality. I asked you about getting out and you started talking about how much you like the reserves and how important it is for people to continue to serve and that the call to service is valued in the reserves and in MAR4 res and how you need people to stay in. We went through some of the data on the talent retention, which was just I didn't know those statistics, and they're they're incredible. The one about it takes a thousand corporals to make a meritorious sergeant, and you have more meritorious sergeants in the IRR than all of the wings and divisions combined. I mean, that's almost unbelievable. We kind of wrapped it up from there. So with that, I'll say thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed this. I'll, I'll give you the last second here to make any final parting comments. I'm mindful as I listen to you summarize this. You've given me two and a half hours to sit here and paint myself in the best possible position. I think. To be fair, everything I've said is who I aspire to be on my best day. It's not who I am every day. And it's really me almost having a conversation with myself about who I aspire to be when I'm effective. I have failed lots, and I've failed to meet the mark 
a lot. And I'll be the first one to admit that I am where I am today because I have gotten a disproportionate amount of credit for the performance of my Marines. And I've been lucky that nothing awful has happened on my watch. And I'm very mindful of that. So please don't take this as me preaching to you. It's just my perspective based on my experience and who I continue to aspire to be as a developing leader just like you. That's the purpose of the project is for everyone to articulate their memories and stories and everything so that future leaders can learn from your stories. And you've got a lot of them. And I'll wrap it up by just saying the Marine Corps is a better place because you're in it. Oh, thanks, Dave. And I appreciate your project, man. Best of luck to you and Semper Fi, man. This has been Lieutenant General David Bellin. Again, you can see his Instagram site on USMC Reserve on Instagram. And then, of course, my podcast can be found on all the major players. Instagram account, The Mill Office, I'm most active there, but there's some stuff on Facebook. So check it out. And with that, we'll wrap up and say goodbye.